few weeks ago. Megan and I were on our way to see the film Lincoln at the Westview Shopping Center here in Frederick, and we unexpectedly found quite a large-sized crowd gathered around a brightly decorated tree in the central plaza. There was free hot chocolate, there were costumed characters floating around, and a dance troupe that seemed like they should be pretty cold considering the temperature and how little they were wearing. Uh, no judgment. Uh, <laughs> We came to discover that we had unintentionally stumbled upon the annual tree lighting. Now keep in mind that at this point, Thanksgiving Day was almost a week ahead of us. I turned to Megan and said, looks like Christmas has come to Frederick, ready or not. To satisfy my own curiosity, I googled this event and discovered that the official title is the Westview Promenade Tree Lighting Ceremony. So, technically, Christmas is not in the title. And upon closer examination of the tree itself, there were no distinctly Christian ornaments, for better or worse. Only candy, wrapped packages, colored baubles, and gingerbread figures. And on one hand, I appreciate the festivity of seasonal decorations. On the other hand, I recognize that exclusively promoting Christmas during the holiday season can be unwelcoming to non-Christians. And even for many people who find Christian traditions meaningful, the increasingly early, commercialized, and ubiquitous presence of Christmas can be troubling. Now, rewinding to even earlier in December with Halloween barely passed, Megan and I had made a similar trip to Westview to see the film Argo, and as we strolled on that evening from our car to the theater, we found the sounds of Christmas carols surrounding us from the loudspeakers. Uh, Megan and I both enjoy holiday music, but as a friend commented on Facebook recently, I love the holidays. I just like them one at a time. Those of you who have been following the debates in recent years about the so-called war on Christmas know that navigating the holiday season becomes markedly more complex when you move from the freedom of private property, like the Westview Mall, to public property. And last week in the regular bi-monthly meeting of UUCF's uh, atheist humanist uh, agnostic group called fondly AHA, Someone mentioned that one of the opening skirmishes in this year's holiday season was happening out in Santa Monica, California. According to the Washington Post, a few days after Megan and I stumbled on the, upon the Westview tree lighting here in Frederick, a federal judge denied a bid by churches to force city officials in Santa Monica to reopen spaces in a city park to private displays, including life-size Christmas nativities. The city shut down the six-decade tradition last year after a bitter dispute between religious groups and atheists because those atheists overwhelmed the city's auction process for display sites, winning most of the 21 slots. In last year's struggle, the secular groups got the right to use 18 of the 21 holiday slots that were being auctioned off in stalls for what's known as Palisades Park while two stalls went to traditional Christmas displays and one to a Hanukkah display. The atheist groups used their stalls to put up signs referring to religion as a myth and comparing Santa Claus to the devil. <laughs> so 
Most of the signs were vandalized in the ensuing uproar. Now, whether you agree or disagree with the results, the approach of the atheists in Santa Monica is strategically savvy. As one commenter says, in recent years, the tactics of many in the atheist community has been, if you can't beat them, join them. If these church groups insist that these public spaces are going to be dominated by a Christian message, we'll just get in the game, and that changes everything. And we don't have to look all the way to the West Coast for holiday conflicts. A similar battle has been playing out in Leesburg, Virginia. There, the if-you-can't-beat-them-join-them tactics have seen creches, Hanukkah, Menorot, and Christmas trees joined with Star Wars displays, for those whose religion is Jediism, as well as tributes from self-described Pastafarians, not Rastafarians, Pastafarians from the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Some of you say, are you fam- how many of you are familiar with the Church of the... Okay, we've got some people familiar with the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. This satirical religion was founded in 2005 in a somewhat serious effort to stymie debates that intelligent design should be given equal time in public high school curricula. Pastafarians proposed... Uh, seems, see if you think this is reasonable. They said, if we're going to give one-third time to intelligent design, we should give one-third time as well to uh, flying spaghetti monsterism, and a one-third time for logical congesture based on overwhelming observable evidence. <laughs> now, even more controversially, some of you may recall that last year a life-size crucified skeleton dressed in a Santa costume was put on the grounds of the Loudoun Courthouse in Leesburg, Virginia. The claimed intent was to, quote, depict society's materialistic obsessions and addictions and how it is killing the peace, love, joy, and kindness that is supposed to be prevalent during the holiday season. Now, I suspect you can imagine the uproar and offense that many experienced at that site. But admittedly, that crucified skeleton Santa was the work of one rogue citizen. But a similar statement was presumably being made this past Friday, when around 3 o'clock p.m., an artist set off a series of explosions in a 40-foot Christmas tree in front of the Freer and Sackler galleries on the National Mall. Now, I will say this piece of performance art was announced in advance, so Homeland Security did not descend upon them. But along the lines of these protests, I do think that many religious people fail to appreciate the offense that segments of our population regularly experience when they see this widespread, uncritical, unquestioning celebration of myths that they consider, at least, to be antiquated superstition. And that ongoing rejection of science by many uh, religious groups just kind of rubs salt in those wounds, leading toward... Uh, retaliations like the crucified Santa incident. So there's a sense in which I can see the justification for having a holiday display such as occurred in Leesburg in which secular humanists read publicly from Darwin's Origin of the Species to show an alternative perspective to the nearby Christian groups reading from the Gospel of Luke. In this spirit, Carl Sagan has in all earnestness said that a religion that stressed the magnificence of the universe as revealed by modern science, might be able to draw forth a reserve of reverence and awe that is hardly tapped by conventional faiths. 
So it's not just that displays by atheists have to be bad faith efforts. Some of them are quite earnest. Just as lighting the Yule log on winter solstice celebrates that daylight will soon start growing incrementally longer, and just as Christmas celebrates the light revealed in the life of Jesus, so too the reading of scientific texts like Darwin can be a celebration of enlightenment knowledge that brings more light to this world. So taking all these competing interests in our society into account, the only options I can see to a pluralistic public square is a naked public square. And although I'm sympathetic to the arguments for a naked public square, I'm not convinced that we should give up on the possibility of a healthy, robust pluralism. After all, the most vibrant, fertile ecosystems are not monocultures or barren landscapes, but those teeming with diverse forms of life. And in reflecting on how all these diverse holiday interest groups compete for attention in the public square, I was particularly struck by one quote in the Washington Post about that situation that I described earlier in Santa Monica, in which a man wanted only Christian nativity scenes on public property. He said, It's a sad, sad commentary on the attitudes of this day that a nearly 60-year-old Christian tradition is having to hunt for a home. And I thought... Is that all it takes? 60 years to have a venerable tradition that can't be questioned? Well, we might be in luck. (laughs) There may be a 60-year-old tradition in Santa Monica of displaying nativity scenes in public spaces. And there may be a much longer tradition of of displaying Christmas trees. But continue to turn back that clock of history. And as many of you know, you'll discover that a Christmas tree is simply a Yule tree that Christians baptized, so to speak, and renamed a Christmas tree. From this perspective, we could protest that the alleged war on Christmas is just a cover-up for the war on Yule. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, so, (laughs) fine. Uh, It's what Laura spoke about earlier, about that long tradition of bringing green into your home. We also need to be honest that what compels most realtors to pump out carols over their loudspeakers the day after Halloween and to put up Christmas traditions in weeks before Thanksgiving has as much to do about anxiety about ending the year in the black as it does with celebrating Jesus' birthday. As I once heard an NPR commentator said, Jesus was not born to be the patron saint of fourth quarter earnings. And in the Christmas rush to buy presents, we can forget that the historical Jesus was an itinerant peasant who warned about the dangers of wealth. Not that you couldn't be wealthy, but that it was a dangerous, seductive thing. And the original Saint Nick brought presents not for everyone, but for the poor children. And there are increasing numbers of individuals and groups who are heavily invested in the Christian tradition that are increasingly seeking to reclaim a more authentic and simpler and less stressful Christmas celebration by emphasizing charity and social justice during the holiday season, that we might truly have peace on earth. But this morning, given that Unitarian Universalism draws from all the world's religions and not only from the Christian tradition, there's an additional response to holiday consumerism that I would like to invite us to explore. Instead of being limited to the traditions of the past, 
What would it look like to intentionally craft our own rituals that both draw from the best of the past as well as are open to reinventing to what's meaningful to us here in the 21st century? We're no less capable of founding a lasting tradition than our ancestors were. Yule, Christmas, Hanukkah, all the other celebrations you could name, they all started somewhere, and there was a time when they did not yet exist. As Emerson challenged us, why should we grope among the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of its faded wardrobe? The sun shines today also. There is more wool and flax in the field. There are new lands, new men, new thoughts. Let us demand our own works, our own laws, our own worship. Now, I have a long-standing interest in the question of how religious traditions come to be invested with meaning and with authority. Many of us here today grew up with holiday rituals, songs, and foods. And those seasonal traditions, they have a special resonance with us because we first experienced them at a young, impressionable age. And that special resonance can continue sometimes, sometimes against our will even as we become adult and perhaps question the theology and the history espoused by some of those traditional celebrations. So an invitation is to consider how we might craft an equally meaningful set of traditions for ourselves and for our future generations. Admittedly, establishing new traditions is difficult work and takes time. Catherine Bell is a ritual scholar, and she's studied this process She writes, there's an increased pressure for the invented rite to show that it, quote, works. That that is what legitimates the rite, since there's no tradition to legitimate it. You have to show that it works. Of course, that expectation of what it means to work are not the same for those traditional rituals, for which one is asked not whether the rite worked for you, but just whether it was done correctly according to some alleged historical precedent. Now, I suspect many of you have experienced sitting through a tradition that is devoid of meaning for you, but it's being done for the the sake of tradition alone, allegedly because we've always done it that way, even though we know that if you go far enough back in history, we have not, in fact, always done it that way. And one of the best parts of Unitarian Universalism is that our congregational life together is not constrained by a book of worship or a book of order. We have tremendous freedom to cut ties from words and rituals from the past that have become burdensome, meaningless, or oppressive. But this freedom to innovate can simultaneously leave us bereft of any grounding in historical tradition. So accordingly, one of the ongoing discussions we're having with our worship associates here at UUCF is how to craft intentionally rituals that will be meaningful to us here and now. And you've seen some of that in our choice to experiment with singing Spirit of Life each week so that the more, as we sing it over and over, you begin to learn it by heart. And that by heart has multiple meanings. We learn it by heart, by memory, but also by heart. It sinks into us. It sinks into our heart, soul, mind, and spirit. It becomes to have special emotional resonance. So we're, we're trying to increasingly be intentional about choices such as those, how to shape the beginning and ending of our service in many other ways. 
And if there are particular rituals or traditions that you found meaningful here or in similar congregations, I invite you to share with them with me or with one of our worship associates. To share with you briefly an example from my life of being intentional about ritual, many of you know that Megan was raised in a Reform Jewish tradition, and I was raised in a Christian tradition. One of the reasons our interfaith marriage never never posed much of a problem for us is that from the beginning of our relationship, we both viewed our respective religious traditions as equally legitimate paths. When that's not the case, I've seen it become quickly problematic. But there is significant pressure in many Jewish circles not to have a Christmas tree based on the understandable anxiety that Christmas will overshadow Hanukkah or Christianity might consume Judaism especially given the dominance of Christianity in many parts of our country. But one reason we're grateful to be Unitarian Universalists is the encouragement to practice what could be called a conjunctive religion, a both-and religion, instead of limiting your options to either one tradition or the other. So this year we have a Christmas tree decorated with family heirloom ornaments, and we will also light our Hanukkah, the menorah specifically used for the eight nights of Hanukkah. We sometimes joke about celebrating not just Christmas or Hanukkah, but Chrismukkah. And hearkening back to Yule, Megan and I really love this tradition of lighting candles, of having a lit Christmas tree, to really help brighten and warm these increasingly cold and long nights as we move toward solstice, the longest and darkest night of the year. So to take one more step down this road of new holiday rituals, uh, have any of you ever heard of Chalica? Any Chalica adherents? A few? A few? Uh, Chalica, as you'll see in your order of service, is spelled like the word chalice in the sermon title, but it ends with an A. It came from a group of UUs wondering what it might look like to create a new UU holiday. And just as the venerable traditions of Yule, Christmas and Hanukkah all had a historical starting point. The first Chalica celebration was in 2005. The first day of Chalica is always the first Monday in December. So whether you knew it or not, you were coming to a UU congregation on Chalica Eve. (laughs) The festivities continue for seven days with a focus each day on one of the seven principles of Unitarian Universalism. And since UUism is more about deeds than creeds, The idea is not only to focus on the meaning of that day's principle, but also to find at least one good deed that you can do to honor and embody and live out that principle. So you can look on the back of your order of service. If you want to try practicing Chalica this week, you can look at those seven principles and, and think about how you might do something to actually help make those an enfleshed reality in the world this next week. But I invite you to think more about that after the sermon. Now, this fledgling holiday of Chalica is still in its infancy, but there's already a Chalica Facebook page, a Chalica blog, and even an original Chalica-themed songs. Actually, more than there's three or four that are on YouTube. And predating the seven-year-old tradition of Chalica is another proposed new UU tradition called Illuminations. You'll see that in your sermon title. If those of you not, that haven't spent much time around UUs, they'll find if it's possible to put a Two capitalized U's in a word, we'll, we'll do it if it's possible. Uh, so you'll see that with illumination. 
I'll include a link in the footnotes of the sermon uh, in the manuscript version to more information about illumination uh, and how that new holiday has been celebrated. But as the sermon ends, in the spirit of holiday festivities, I want to share with you a few of the lyrics to one of the Chalica songs on YouTube. This song in particular is set to the tune of Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Do any of you know, if you know the Hanukkah song? All right. Uh, so the singer-songwriter begins. I wrote this song for all you UU kids out there who don't get to hear many Chalica songs. Each Chalica Eve, a candle we light. From the first Monday in December, we have seven principled nights. So when you feel like the only kid in town with a chalice by your tree, here's a list of people who are Unitarian Universalists, just like you and me. (laughs) Benjamin Franklin would light the first chalice, along with P.T. Barnum and the poet Carrie, Alice. Look who sits together for coffee and conversation, Alexander Bell and the 13th president of our nation. Millard Fulmore. Tom Jefferson was UU-ish, and Paul Revere was too. Roger Baldwin founded the ACLU. Dick Cheney, not UU. But guess who is? The guy who played Cool Hand Luke. We've got Charles Dickens, Susan B. Anthony, and Ray Bradbury. Frankenstein was written by a Unitarian named Mary. Barack Obama, still not UU, but guess who is? Nine presidents of Harvard U. Now, if you Google the Chalica song, you can watch the full video for yourself. There's actually two different versions by the guy who wrote that one and and yet another one by someone else. But the larger point is to consider celebrating a week each year in which we UUs focus each day on one of the seven principles and even more importantly, do something to live out and embody those principles. So perhaps you'll consider spending a week this December, either next week or one to come, celebrating some form of chalica. Lighting either a chalice or a candle each night to share with your friends or family how you've learned about or practiced one of the UU principles in that past day. But ultimately, my hope for you this holiday season, whether you're celebrating science, chalica, chrismica, or the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, is that you find a meaningful way to cultivate hope, peace, joy, and love in this world in the days and weeks to come. And I look forward to celebrating and creating new and old traditions with you here at UUCF this year and in the years to come. So I wish you all season's greetings, happy holidays, and a joyous Chalicot.